VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello again. Welcome to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. And as we begin to enter another new phase of living, a new type of living for many people in the UK, the Prime Minister has done us a favour. He's announced the Premier League is safe, so we're going to keep keeping you fully entertained for the weeks to come, you very lucky people. And there is much more to come today as well. A hundred not out for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer as Manchester United boss will ask if there's been progress It's a results business featuring Chris Wilder and Graham Potter. We'll play celebrity splash with Kane and Salah. And as Latan Ibrahimovic morphs into a latter-day Dorian Gray, we'll discuss our favourite golden oldies with me. On a lovely Monday morning, uh, Alison Rudd, Tom Clark, and Gregor Robertson. Hello, guys. Hello. Hi, Hugh. Hello, Hugh. How are we doing? Very well. Nice to have you all back with me as well. Familiar faces um, and a familiar story and one that I don't think we need to go over much more ground on. At Manchester United, I guess we, we can't keep discussing them every week. But 100 games since manager Ole Gunnar Solskjaer took over. He has won 56, drawn 20, lost 24. Compare that with Louis van Gaal, who had won 52 and drawn and lost 24 matches each. And Jose Mourinho, who, you know, proved his quality clearly with 62 wins at 20 draws and also 24 defeats. So 24 defeats from all three men in their time in charge. In a word... Um, have they evolved? Is, is there any progression? Alison, what do you think? Isn't there a show called 24? Mm-hmm. Maybe they should make a documentary, you know, a new Amazon one called 24. Anyway, um, progression, well, clearly stagnation from the statistics. The um, I've looked more closely than I normally would at Manchester United in the last two games. So the joy that was Leipzig and the gross disappointment that was Arsenal and the common denominators there aren't many which in in itself implies there isn't progress because you're supposed to build as a manager aren't you if if, if you hit the jackpot get it right then keep going replicate build success breeds success and so on so there's a stuttering element to Solskjaer which is peculiar but what I think overwhelmingly he needs to do is stop sitting in the stand looking at a monitor, especially, it, may, it might not matter so much when you've got a, a noisy crowd, but when the, when the stadiums are empty, as a manager, you get your point across so much more clearly where you never could before from the touchline. And he's not doing that. He's just doing this cerebral act of looking at a monitor as if he he's not fully responsible. There's a dispassionate element to him. And I think sometimes the players, and a lot of them are young, uh, they look a bit lost. It's very hard to know what the pattern's supposed to be, how they're supposed to gel. And I don't see that you can blame the players too much when the manager who's picked them in those positions is looking at a screen. He's not stood there shouting encouragement, reminding them what they've done in training. He's His arms folded, frowning into a monitor. And I, I don't think he's doing himself any favours. I'm prepared to give Solskjaer a lot of time actually I like him a lot and I'm not entirely sure why but I do but I just I just think this is this is getting slightly silly this this sort of disconnect he portrays in a game and sometimes you can see the disconnect mirrored on the pitch so that is not progress to answer your question the hundred days thing I think you know it's like groundhog it would be groundhog a hundred days if there was another hundred days of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer I just think there is a cycle that we have repeatedly discussed in this podcast of sort of what looks like some progress, some steps forward, some maybe little 
tweaks of tactical changes that you think, oh, maybe he's maybe he's stumbled onto something here, or maybe maybe he's not stumbled onto it. Maybe he's he's found a way of making Manchester United win some games consistently, and then you know some people are are fooled by that and lulled, lulled into into a, a, a sense of progress. But it's it's very 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 marginal, and it has been throughout his tenure. Uh, so there has been some progress, but really, it's kind of baby steps. And what we're seeing is that he's not on a par. He's not going to take Manchester United to the level where they're competing for the Premier League title. And you know, I don't know how many times I have to say that. So that really is is all I have to say about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer <laughs> and his hundred days. <laughs> well, my dad's a lawyer, so forgive me if I sound a bit like I'm in a courtroom, but I would refer to the listener to games podcasts from May, June, July, August, September uh, and October for my view on Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. So I won't bore you too much. There's been some progress. He'd taken them as far as he could go, I think, towards the end of last season. That's about all you have to say. That game against Arsenal was symbolic of Manchester United as they are now. Not many ideas, looking pretty limited in attack and desperately trying to get something, anything out of Paul Pogba uh, and generally failing. Putting a lot of pressure on Bruno Fernandes in a position and formation where he's constantly hounded and cramped for space. Um, but I would, I would say the most interesting thing for me, and this is perhaps uh, worrying for Gregor, is that Mikel Arteta's Arsenal didn't look much better than Manchester, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's Manchester United. I won't be sure about that. I mean, you know, Saka on the winger side, I d- they didn't look particularly exciting or creative. And it's what I said before the Chelsea game as well. I think sometimes Solskjaer either goes Fred and McTominay and tries not to be so open and then becomes quite easy to play against or they attack a little bit more, but they're op- wide open at the back. They beat Brighton just about but they concede a lot of chances that's kind of that's the kind of choice but I didn't think Arsenal looked great either but I'm not I'm not suggesting Mikel Arteta is in the same position as Ole Gunnar Solskjaer definitely not I think the fundamental difference between the two teams despite what Tom's saying being kind of broadly true and that Arsenal aren't you know really a potent attacking force is that Arsenal despite all that were proactive and Manchester United were still reactive Arsenal were on the front foot they pressed them and even when when Man United tried to play through the lines, someone like Gabriel was aggressive on the halfway line. Manchester United never, their defenders never do that. It's they're always sitting back and trying. Everything's in front of them. So Arsenal, Arsenal had at least some bravery in the way that they attempted to press uh, Man United. I know they didn't create that many chances. They won on a penalty kick, um, but you could see the plan, and that's something that is absent with Manchester United. I just want to go back to something that Alison said, because I had a big argument about this yesterday with a non-Manchester United fan about um, the midfield yesterday. And um, that person, a former player, in fact, was speaking about how um, when you see things going wrong on the pitch, as a player, you have to react. You can't wait for the dugout to tell you um, what to do. You can't be micromanaged in that way. And the midfielders yesterday of Manchester United allowed El Nenny and Partey to basically control the midfield area. And I said, well, hold on a minute. If you're a manager and you're in the dugout and you see your players not reacting, surely it is a massive part of your job from the touchline to convey the message that they need to react if they're not good enough or smart enough to do it themselves. And lots of the reaction, it seemed yesterday, at least looking at social media, was in fact a blame game being shifted towards the players of Manchester United. Um, and I wondered how much responsibility the players should take for yesterday's performance. What do you think, Gregor? You've played? I think the players should take responsibility for the performance, but I think it's an old-fashioned viewpoint that they should react on the pitch. I mean, I, you know, again, if you refer to the to the top managers in the country and, and in Europe, there is a absolutely kind of steadfast plan and a tactical blueprint and if you you know if you verge away from that then probably you're not going to play in the team so I think that's an old-fashioned viewpoint but of course the majority of the of the blame for that performance which was I mean it just when you when you see when you see kind of old, old former pros kind of going on rants about a lack of enthusiasm and energy and stuff there's it's not 
it's not just about the players not being able to get themselves up for it. Part of that ties in with the way that they are sent out to play and set up. It's not there's no kind of as I, I keep saying, no overriding plan. I feel that it's it would be quite kind of underwhelming to be a Manchester United player right now. Would you react more? I mean, I keep thinking of the, the, there are some fantastic teams in European football. You know, if you think of the likes of Liverpool and Manchester City, Atletico Madrid, you know, them, their managers don't sit down on the touchline, despite the fact that their teams are vastly better and their players are vastly better. They are still there billowing instructions, bellowing instructions. So you as a player, with the instructions you're given from the training field and pre-match, do you think that's enough to go out there and perform? Or do you feel like, you're in a better position if you're constantly getting instructions from the dugout. The the majority of the planning happens before the game. So what they're doing in the training ground is what really you see the evidence of on the pitch. But the manager bailing out instructions and being that kind of intense figure that many of these top managers are nowadays is because there is a plan and there is a kind of a system and, a, and an over, overriding idea of what you should do. And it's meticulous and there's, there's trigger points to press and things like that. Manchester United have none of that. They, they are reactive. They're, they're only only a, a team that are effective when the, te- when the opposition come to. And, and Arsenal did that. As I say, they pressed, but Manchester United couldn't play through. Or when they did play through, Arsenal had players who were aggressive all over the pitch and they were brave enough to go and press and win the ball, no matter where that was. And Man United never even tried to turn them. I mean, they didn't try to stretch the play at all. They have pace up front. Uh, you know, I was saying that in the first half. Uh, to myself, <laughs> why, why, why would you not turn? Why would you not be turning the play at this point? I know that again can sound old-fashioned, but it's it's one way of getting your, the team up the pitch a little bit rather than inviting Arsenal on top of them, which is what they wanted to do. Just, I think another good point that stems from Alison's uh, uh, point about Solskjaer on the touchline is, and it feeds into what Gregor just said there. They they're always very slow, Manchester United, to me. The only chance they really had and the only time they did turn Arsenal was when I think Marcus Rashford won and took a quick free kick and just played a one-two with Fernandes and managed to turn Arsenal, get in behind their midfield and he played a lovely cross-field pass, splitting the defence to Mason Greenwood, who had a shot. That was about the only time they did that. For all the pace that we, that we talk about and excitement, the build-up play is always so slow and perhaps that urgency again as Alison says comes from a lack of urgency on the touchline Solskjaer such a you know he seems very passive and polite and that perhaps ends up coming across in the play you know if you see someone like Jurgen Klopp shouting and screaming on the touchline that is mirrored in the way Liverpool play a lot of the time in terms of their intensity yeah but it matters what he's shouting that's the most important thing it's not all about the optics of this the manager the guy balling and shouting or being the intense figure on the touchline it's what they're telling them and there's a reason for them to to be telling it <laughs> there's none of that that's the thing it's the, it's the information that is the most important thing and it's it seems from our certainly from an outsider's point of view that that is almost non-existent there, I think I think the problem here is not not. I mean you've got the Ralph Hasenhutl which who has emerged as the most vociferous on the touchline and it's working clearly Southampton are, are doing well not every manager does it but the ones that don't they have players on the pitch who do so but at United, you, you've neither got a manager with a presence and charisma and a voice on the touchline, nor have you got a player who's doing that on the pitch. They're quiet on the pitch and they're quiet off the pitch. And you can't have that double whammy. I just don't think you can. And it seems so obvious. I just cannot believe they haven't addressed it or Solskjaer hasn't realised that to inject the, the passion, movement, pace, energy that you've talked about, chaps, that comes from personality, whether it's a player, players or the manager. But to have none of them doing it is, is utterly bizarre. Uh, well, it's Everton next for Manchester United, who have seven points from their opening six Premier League games. That's the lowest since David Moyes' ill-fated time in charge when they went on uh, to finish seventh. We know what happened uh, with him. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, I think we'll find out uh, the same soon, whether it is... A results business, as many people say. United 15th at the moment. They're just ahead of Brighton, who lost to Spurs. And there are a few places above Sheffield United as well, who are narrowly beaten by Manchester City this weekend. Seven games in, there is one point earned uh, between Brighton and Sheffield United. And their two managers do have a style and a way of playing, and they, and they do have a model but when it doesn't get you results, you may have to revert to plan B. My question is when? 
does that happen if you're Graham Potter or Chris Wilder, their managers? Uh, what do you think, Tom? I think they're two... There's two different things going on at both clubs at the minute. I would say Sheffield United seem to be in a sort of a period of transition, a little bit, a mini transition, if you like, in terms of they've brought in a lot of young, exciting players in the summer, Rian Brewster probably being the best example of that. And I wasn't quite sure whether all of them fitted the exact way that Wilder played last season. So I think there's a little bit of change in the way they're perhaps trying to play Sander Berger in midfield as well looks to be quite, you know, creative and wanting to get on the ball all the time, which is perhaps a little bit at odds with some of the combative styles of the midfielders they've had over the past few seasons. So I would say that they perhaps are already trying to head into a sort of plan B and are struggling because of it. And if you look at the games they've had this season, they've played a lot of the teams who've done quite well. Aston Villa, Leeds being a good example, good examples. And also that the, the games they've lost, they've only lost by one goal generally, I think, apart from the start of the season when they lost 2-0 to Wolves. So I think there's something different going on there. I think with Brighton, there is a need for a plan B perhaps at times. Um, I watched their game against Crystal Palace, which was one of those classic movie old styles of football. Crystal Palace got the goal and sat deep and I think had one shot on target. Uh, Brighton had numerous shots on goal, all of the possession and only equalised thanks to a deflected goal towards the end. And there's lots of people at the moment saying, oh, Brighton, a great, great watch. And they're really, really good and really enjoyable. Everything's lovely. They're, they're, they're that classic modern day team, aren't they? Where as an opposition fan, we saw this a lot on Twitter yesterday. There were a lot of Tottenham fans going, oh, Br- aren't Brighton a nice team? They're that team where you beat them 2-1 or 1-0 and then you come out afterwards and you say, oh, their manager's really nice. Don't they play really lovely football? Isn't it great? And actually, whether Brighton fans are actually thinking that or not, I'm not entirely sure. So I think Brighton do perhaps need a plan B. I think Sheffield United are sort of looking for a new plan A at the moment, and that is perhaps why they've struggled. Gregor, tactically, the way they set up Brighton, um, they play great stuff. There's a lack of a cutting edge at times, possibly. Um, but Graham Potter has this sort of, well, I mean, he had this reputation from, from many in the media, the press, the, the things that he'd done in his previous jobs as well. Um, some thought maybe a, a job in the Premier League was too soon for him, managed to stay up in his first year. And of course, he'd been brought in to play better football. That, I think that was the, the widely reported thing. You know, he was appointed to play a better style, not just keep Brighton up, but you can't have style over substance. No, I think one thing you could say about Brighton is that they kind of almost did revert to a plan B at the back end of last season when they were, you know, they couldn't buy a win and I think they started to go a little bit more more direct. But there's no doubt, and as you say, that Potter is, wants to play this style of football. He wants to build from the back. He wants to dominate the ball. Um, I just think, I think with Brighton, the as you say, the, the lack of a cutting edge is a pretty important thing. And they're also, you know, they're, they're conceding a fair number of goals as well. Um, whereas Sheffield United, there's all very narrow, narrow margins. And, you know, you saw that there's a bit of analysis on Match of the Day and Henry Winter referenced it in Times Today as well. Like Alan Shearer saying they have to get the ball in the box. This, you know, he cut all these all these uh, frames from the game where it was opportunities to cross the ball in the box. If I was a striker, you know, him and Gary Lineker were saying, if I'm a striker, I'm, I'm going crazy at the players are not playing into the box. Sheffield, Sheffield United last season, they're, they're the best way, they're, they're, their best way of making chances was overloads. So they have Basham and Baldock on the right and a midfielder coming across and they combine and they get into better positions to combine and cross. And they've lost, and on the left, that involved O'Connell. Connell's out for the season. You know, they've brought in a new a new player, low and uh, wing back, and he's, he's learning that system. Uh, even Norwood's not been playing in, the central midfield and he's often the one who can orchestrate the play so I agree with Tom that there's a slight kind of transition process there and I think this is always going to be the hardest thing for Sheffield United because they're, they're back three uh, they're back five even Steve, Stevens came in the championship they've all been there since League One like a lot of this team have been there since for a number of years they are absolutely grounded in the way that Sheffield United play um, and there's been some some knocks to that. Egan's been injured. O'Connell's out for the season. Flex being injured. So when they lose these figures, the players coming in are not quite as kind of, you know, 
drilled in the in the system and way to play. Um, but again, last season they didn't score enough goals. So I think some of it is, is personnel as well. But I think it was too simplistic to say you need to throw the ball into the box more because what Sheffield United do is do everything they can to work overloads down the flanks and get into better positions to create chances. The other thing that Sheffield United did when they were so successful last season was tap into that underdog mentality. Chris Wilder picked players who he he would say are uh, angry, hungry to prove themselves. Um, He relied on high energy, a a very strict mental approach. He could be quite, in inverted commas, cruel to his players in terms of his rotation of the strikers as well. He basically wanted to make them annoyed. So they're they're not top strikers. So how do you get strikers to score in the Premier League if they're not really very good you make them very angry that was the philosophy and I think the lack of rest time the lack of preparation is really not good for a team like Sheffield United that rely on that sharp hunger mental hunger that all those sort of energetic elements that you just don't get if you've just not had time time off and time to prepare properly and I thought it was really interesting his comments after the game he said it sort of seemed to be saying, well, I'm giving the players access to sports psychologists. And then he undermined it by saying, well, I never needed one. It's like, and you know, does a sports psychologist actually score a goal? So I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure Wilder himself has bought into the processes he might need to regenerate that hunger in his team. I think, I think overall, if I was going to rank the teams that have suffered from lack of preparation... It might might be his that suffered the most because of how he operates, actually. Brighton's forwards. I wonder what motivates them because Neil Mope and Aaron Connolly were left out of the squad entirely for Brighton this weekend and that raised a few eyebrows as well. Can you ponder why? Do you have a reason why? Have you heard any murmurs as to why Graham Potter might have done that, Alison? The face of it explanation doesn't work. Um, rotation, resting, tactics, hardly, because everything that Gregor said about Brighton, uh, part of it is is solved if you have someone with the attitude of Neil Mope. Uh, I've interviewed him. He's a very confident chap, should we put it like that? That's exactly what you want from <laughs> it's exactly what you want from a striker. I can only assume he's probably been I don't know, said something, been a bit too uh, me, me, me in training or something. I mean, there's been a grating going on and he's thought, well, I don't want him around the squad. Maybe he's undermining the squad. But I would, given that Brighton played nice stuff and they're quite pretty, uh, but really need to sharpen up, Mopé's exactly the character you want. I mean, if if you've watched him this season, he's been, anything that Brighton have done that's been niggly or contentious or controversial has had him at the heart of it. He winds up opposition players. He's really feisty. And I just think without him there, I mean, why he wasn't even on the bench is peculiar. Without him there in some capacity, just dilutes whatever aggression Brighton have. And also, it might be a deflection tactic because, as you say, it's two forwards he controversially left at home. But their defending against Spurs was absolutely abysmal. I I can't think of anybody who would have missed Gareth Bale's chance because he was in acres of space. He had time to he had time to fantasize about scoring his first goal in six hundred years for Spurs. He shouldn't that, that shouldn't have been allowed to happen. So I'm I, this is I think might be the first really wrong footedness we've seen from from Potter, who's been given a lot of leeway I think because of his rather interesting, almost fairy tale like backstory. Uh, just quickly, at this point, early on in the season, um, are we confident that both Brighton and Sheffield United will stay up? I think Sheffield United definitely will, because as I say, I think they're two very different uh, sides going through different periods of difficulty. I wouldn't be so sure about Brighton, but having said that, I thought they'd go down last season and they didn't. Um, I, I think... It's the combination of all those factors Alison's just outlined. They're a bit nice. Even when they're attacking, it's like they're passing it to each other, not in the way that Arsenal used to do because they're trying to score the perfect goal, but because they look a little bit like they're afraid to shoot. No, no, go on, after you, after you. And without Mopé, it's all just just a bit polite and friendly. And 
and same in defence, I think, a little bit. They look a bit weak and they look like they can get at them all the time. So I think Brighton might struggle. I think Sheffield United will be okay. I think think they'll probably both be okay. But, you know, everyone seems to be, you know, it's almost like there's only one relegation spot this year. Fulham and West Brom are doomed already. That's that's the kind of commonly held view. Um, And, well, West Brom have got more points than Sheffield United at the moment. And... Um, I, the thing is, I know, having kind of also worked under Chris Wilder in a relegation fight, I know that he kind of he he's someone who is an absolute scrapper. Like he he, there's nothing that he won't look at, and there's no there's no tactic he won't try and employ to get Sheffield United out of this. And they've been together a long, long time. Um, I still think you know. Brian Brewster's a great signing. Ampadu is a really good signing. Um, I think you know. I think they've improved. If you look at the squad from last season to this year, I think they've improved it. They've obviously lost a couple through injury, but I think I think Sheffield United will be okay. And I think Brighton will be okay because I'm one of those people who watches them every week and go, I quite enjoy watching Brighton. And I know that's not getting them the results right now, but um, I still think they look they look confident in their play and they look like they have a plan. And I feel that that generally will work to their advantage against those who don't. No, I think probably United have more of a chance of staying up than Brighton between the two of them, mainly because Chris Wilder prepares for this more than he prepares for success. His sort of um, big thing when they got promoted was not was not so much let's adapt to the Premier League. It was how as a group will we cope if it goes horribly wrong? So he was, he was on top of it and didn't need to be. So I assume he's got this little book and he can go back to it now because everything he thought might happen at the start of the previous campaign has happened at the start of this one. So he's, he's, he's ready for it and um, he's been in difficult situations before. So he's certainly got the um, strength of personality to see them through. Brighton, I'm less sure about because once you I, I I hope I'm wrong but if Potter is starting to deflect by leaving players out of the squad at this stage that doesn't bode well to me at all. One quick thing I want to think about with relegation in relation to this season is I do wonder whether what decisions teams might make and not just Sheffield United and Brighton you're talking about your West Broms your Fulhams in this strange season which is almost a little bit like uh, you could write write it off as a season and you know just look ahead to the future that that Norwich idea of last season where they you felt like they'd almost accepted they were going to go down and plan accordingly with their squad and their signings whether teams like Brighton might say well we're happy with Potter and the way he plays we'll give him time to get it right and they can go down and we'll start again with fans because there's a big factor i would say in supporters um, being in the grounds with a team when you change manager in February, trying to trying to change things around. And I wonder whether clubs might make dis- certain decisions based on the weird season we're in. You know, do we actually want to mit- change manager, spend a load of money in January, try and stay up, but actually it'll be worth nothing and we'll be back in the championship by the time fans return. Um, so that that's one thing I wonder, because Brighton might come to that pinch point in a few months' time if it carries on as it, as we are. We'll see. I think my view on that would be, uh, given the economic uh, future that maybe football's facing, it is all about staying in the Premier League for those clubs at the moment. But we'll, we'll see how it goes for both Brighton and Sheffield United. Uh, speaking of how it's going, you're, you're right there, Gregor. I mean, I think it's just a shimmer of sunlight coming through your window and hitting your water. But given you're wearing a white t-shirt yeah it sort of looks like Patrick Swayze in Ghost when he got taken up and I'm a bit worried that you might sort of float (laughs) up into the ether there so it's it's a bit All Saints Day over there I'll put the blind down for you (laughs) (laughs) there you go our our very own Angel Gregor Robertson there yeah we can see you now thank you very much Um, look there are plenty of reasons um, for us to be unhappy. Let's go from an angel to a couple of devils in the Premier League this weekend in terms of diving. Uh, we'll talk about that next on the game podcast. Uh, but don't forget to enjoy more of our award-winning sports journalism. Subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times and you can get one month free at the moment. Just go online, search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. 
you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Now, as Bill Edgar wrote in the Times last week, for the past decade or so, we've seen around 25 yellow cards given for simulation, yes, diving per season. However, so far, after almost seven rounds of games of the Premier League this year, we have had none. Harry Kane and Mohamed Salah are the, are the players who I think this weekend would in- incur the wrath of plenty of fans. Uh, Salah earning a penalty at the weekend against West Ham United. Deserved, I think, but he did make sure the referee knew there was contact. And Harry Kane earning a penalty, which I think was a blatant dive. And even Hyungmin Son, I think, getting himself on the list of a player who should have been booked this weekend for diving. Kane probably twice, I should add. Um, disgraceful, I think, is the word that I noted down uh, when I was watching the football this weekend. Um, Let's start because we were speaking about Brighton with Harry Kane's performance against them in terms of, um, I I won't say conning the referee. Um, What what is the word I should use? Um, Clever? The the non-litigious word. He's given him a decision to make, as they always say. Yeah, that's the one. That is the classic. He's used his his experience is the old one. (laughs) I always remember watching a Champions League game in the 90s and Real Madrid were playing. It still winds me up to today. I think Fernando Hierro did the most blatant dive ever in the ITV commentary. Oh, there's Hierro using all of his experience. Cheating is what he's doing. But anyway, yeah, that's, that's that's exactly the term, isn't it? It is good to see Mourinho uh, changing Harry Kane's character. I, I don't know. Did you see Harry Kane's face after he after the, the Adam Lalana had quite a long chat with Kane? And I can you imagine what he was saying? He was saying, "Mate, you fouled me. How's that happened?" And uh, Kane looked. I've never seen that expression on Kane's face before in his entire career. Honestly, he, he had. It didn't even look like him. He looked sort of a bit like. Uh, a four-year-old who's nicked his sister's sweets and his mum said, who's who's done that? And he's trying to look like it wasn't me, even though he's got some, you know, sugar dribbling out the corner of his mouth. <laughs> he, he, looked, he, looked, he looked as guilty as anything. And, it looked, and, and he looked so guilty that it looked sort of almost pre-planned, like, yes, I'm going, to I'm going to be this player under Mourinho. Well, if there's one thing we learned from the documentary, it's, you know, we can't use the word Jose Mourinho uses, but he says, you know, if you're going to be successful, you've got to be not very nice people, doesn't he? So maybe, <laughs> maybe this is, maybe it is working. He's a genius. To be fair, he's, I don't think this is something new personally. Okay, maybe his facial expression afterwards was, but Kane is somebody who's good at initiating contact. That's the new word for it. So he, he even turned around, the ball's in the air, he turned around, up to look at Lalana, thought, right, I get myself in between him and bowled over as soon as there's any contact. So, uh, one thing is, you know, some people were saying, oh, what's the, what's the difference between, you know, there was all this the language around Salah and the way he was spoken of after going to ground easily for a penalty and the language around Kane being clever. You know, Salah's a cheat, claims clever. I think they are different because, as I say, Kane initiated the contact. He knew exactly what he was doing. Salah, the guy kicked him. Although it didn't take much to go down, it was a it was an instinctive reaction to go down. He didn't. It wasn't premeditated. Kane looked, 
ran over on front of Lalana and fell over when he jumped up. I've I've been the defender. I've been mugged off. I've been the guy who's been mugged off like that. And it is enraging because often you're looking at the ball in there. You don't even really, you know, you might be in your peripheral vision, but you don't see him <laughs> coming over kind of with this cunning look in his eyes, Alison says, and kind of hitting the deck on, on purpose. So I think, I think it's a kind of a bit of a worrying trend personally and, 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 uh, in football and, and that there's so many people I think players are getting better at it they're getting so much better at buying fouls it used to be that someone would run across a, an opponent and you know fall to the ground with their arch in their back and their arms flailing in the air they don't do that anymore they they, they almost kind of throw out a leg sometimes and get entangled with the opposite with the defender and buy a foul so it looks it, it, it is a foul but it's it's completely premeditated so you know the thing. The, also, going back to the bookings very briefly, that also you can go back to the, when restart uh, began in June as well. So there's been that was another nine round of fixtures, and there was none, none, no bookings for diving there. So it's fascinating. That's like you know we're getting onto half a season, and <laughs> and there was even there was twenty last season, twenty bookings for simulation before lockdown up until March. So it's the absence of fans. Something is happening to the psychology of how players and referees are either simulating or reacting to simulation. And yet, I think VAR is one of the reasons why there seems to be an increase in simulation. Because if you think you've been touched, but you're not sure, and you think, well, I'd better go down because I think I might have been clipped there, then you know if if it's looked at in slow-mo afterwards, and it's only going to be looked at in slow-mo afterwards if you've fallen down and made a lot of noise about it, so the referee's had to react or thinks he has to react, the chances are you might get lucky and it will it will show that there was contact even though you had no need to go down. And, and, and so you're taking away the immediacy of the occasion, the referee's ability to sense that, that the forward is looking for the foul, there wasn't a foul, it was a dive, if you look at it, you might you might just see that little tiny edge of the boot catch the shin or the toe or whatever, and then suddenly you're in the realms of oh we have to give it because there was contact. So if you're a player, the odds are you know you're playing the odds, you're playing the system. It's like being down the casino. You must you must die for it to be assessed, and then you might get lucky. But you can look at that the other way as well, and you think you might be you should be more likely to be caught for diving. By VAR. Yeah, but, so, you're, but you're, these, not, we're not talking about situations where there is no contact whatsoever. There was contact with Salah, and he had to make sure that people knew there was contact. Yeah, now that's that's the other thing, isn't it? You hear it the other way around, where someone like, I'm talking about Fernando Hierro all the years ago, you talk about Sheffield United and Chris Wilder and all the honest British blokes, and you see it sometimes, don't you? Oh, well, he's been honest there. He stayed on his feet. If he'd gone down, he'd have got a penalty. So that's, we're, I, I think we're essentially not talking about diving anymore in the kind of Jürgen Klinsmann no, sense exactly. of the word. We're not talking about diving in terms of no one touches you and you throw yourself theatrically to the floor. This is a newer level. And it's something that Tony Cascarino talked to me about a lot over the years. And Jamie Vardy was probably the first to make not a career out of it, but he was very good at it, wasn't he? Sprinting to the box. Use his pace, still is. Use his pace to get in front of the defender who then runs across the back of his heels, clips him and he goes down. Tony Cascarino was saying a few years ago that there was no that was all Jamie Vardy was thinking about. He made he was very good at acting and making it look like he was sprinting for the ball. But so that's what I think it's a different conversation. It's not diving, but it is a, a form of play acting of in a way. But it's simulation. And it's, not, and it's not unique to Kane and Salah either, is it? It happens in every league. No, I'm, I'm, I'm not. This is not a gratuitous shoehorn. Lincoln have done quite well this season. <laughs> It's, it's, it's really isn't. Let me finish. Let me finish. Let me finish. One of the top scorers in League One is our captain, George Grant, who scored most, if not all, of his goals from the penalty spot. And all of our penalties, last few certainly, have been won by Brennan Johnson, who's really quick, really skillful on loan from Nottingham Forest. He runs into the box and you can see it coming from a mile away. The defender runs across the back of him and Gregor, you've been in that exact position, gets mugged off, as you say, and even without VAR, the referee points to the penalty spot. And my dad is ringing me afterwards going, oh, well, I thought it was a blatant penalty. And I'm going, yeah, but he bought it, didn't he? Come on, let's be honest. So it's, it's happening in the game across, across the country. There were 
blatant dives in that game. Not necessarily the one that Harry Kane won a penalty for where Adam Lallana went up for the header, even though when VAR checked that, they should have seen it was a foul by Harry Kane. That's massively concerning that VAR agrees that that is a foul by Adam Lallana because it shows some sort of disconnect with people that have played football and the people making judgments about what's happening on the pitch. But later in the game, Hyungmin Son had a hand on his back from Joel Veltman, threw himself to the ground. Veltman then berated him for it. The ball ran to Harry Kane, who then knocked it past another Brighton defender and then just leaped in the air. They checked for penalties, saw that there was no contact and then didn't book the player. Now, I'm sorry, if you're going to have a look at it later on, on tape, and you can see that Harry Kane has made, there's been no contact made with him and he's thrown himself in the air, both feet off the ground to try and win a penalty. That is a yellow card. And that is an issue with the officiating. But that's Alison's point about VAR in that if you're making it about the foul, that's what you look at. You then, so we're, then at, we're now almost asking them to add in a second element where if you decide it's not a foul, you then add in, is it a dive? And we're then, so do we want that? That's the calculation that, that the referees have been making for the last decade. I mean, yeah. they see a player go down in the box, it's not a foul, it's a dive. There are grey areas in that. So I see, I would actually disagree. I would say, although Kane bought that, he was fouled. He, he, made, he, he manoeuvred himself in a position in that, although he was almost going over before Lallana hit him, Lallana did hit him. I don't know whether it was on the, in the box or not. I would say that is a... That is a foul, personally. My, my Although issue, I would be my, raging if that was me. But my issue with those, though, no, quickly, no, Gregor, is that is that I think if you're going to give a foul for a header, players have to attempt to get the ball. You know, and and Harry Kane there is not attempting to get the ball. He's attempting to get underneath Adam Lallana so that he lands on his back. He's not making any attempt to go for the ball. And I don't really think you should get fouls if you're trying to be fouled and you're not trying to get the ball. Well, he was trying to get himself in between Lallana and the trajectory of the ball, which was coming down. So, you know, you could see he was trying to control the ball rather than head the ball. But anyway, is, the, the, the thing, the thing know, is... Though, the, can you? you can no, never of know that. That's, that's, that's of course, but there are instances like Keynes and like I wrote a piece about this last week and there was an example that leapt out to me was Aaron Connolly, uh, Brighton against Manchester United um, late September and Pogba. He, he ran across Pogba in the box fell to the floor, the ref gave a penalty, booked Pogba, he was invited to go across to look at the the, at the monitor, uh, he reversed the decision, which was correct, but again, he didn't book Connolly. And then 10 minutes later, Connolly did exactly the same thing to Harry Maguire. It was a blatant dive again. So he could have been sent off for two bookings and he received a booking for neither. So, you know, there, uh, while there are grey areas, like I would suggest, you know, Keynes's and sometimes... You know, although players are very clever, there's another game, Leicester, I would reference, where they won three penalties against Manchester City. And I would say that two of them, one was Vardy being pulled by Kyle Walker, which is a penalty. Another one was Vardy running across Eric Garcia and intentionally colliding with his stride. I would say that, you know, that again, you could just about give a penalty. But so these are grey areas. But sometimes they're dives. Connolly's was a dive. Kane's was a dive. Not the one that with Alana, the one that you reference you. They have to be booked for that, and I don't know why it is. And the, the, you know, we have to look at the fact that there's no fans. There's a not having no fans changes the psychology of a referee in a match. And you know, there's been loads of studies to suggest that a partisan home crowd affects the way a, a referee referees the game, and they're not there anymore. So I really, I, that's the only thing you can put it down to. Do we think it's just that diving thing though, and that reaction of the crowd, or do we generally think? watching games this season, that it feels a little bit stale in terms of the emotional aggro back and forth between players and referees. Because surely as a player, you're G'd up to maybe go and have a go at the referee by the fans. So because to me, watching some of the games, it's not just the fact that they're not getting booked for diving, that the fans are playing a part. The lack of fans is having an impact. But just generally, there feels it feels a little bit nicer and a bit more polite Overall, I don't know whether that's true. That's just that's how I felt, and I wonder whether that's a it's a broader problem. It's not just players aren't getting booked for diving; people aren't getting booked. You know, Gabriel yesterday foul against Manchester United was on a yellow card. Mason Greenwood or Marcus Rashford turned him near the byline, and he fouled him going into the box. It was a fairly blatant foul. That's a yellow card in front of the Stretford end, and Mike Dean was like, "Thumbs up, crack on, lads. Don't worry about it." And I, it's it, 
is that is that not part is it not part of a bigger problem where there's fewer yellow cards there's fewer the referees are it is this robotic version of refereeing because of the fans well is it um no it's it's also again var's fault because var is not supposed to it's a serious point, actually, Gregor. I can hear you. Say <laughs> it, it, a bar is not allowed to assess a, a yellow card offence. So what you have is the, the the pause in play to assess what might be a penalty or a red card offence, and then it might work out that oh, when you've looked at it, there is a there is a there is a dive there. But the referee is not allowed to say, oh, I've just seen. I've just had in my ear an assessment that there was a yellow card offence committed that had nothing to do with the reason that we're looking at VAR because you you wouldn't look at VAR for a yellow card offence. So they've 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 sanitised it, sterilised it, made football less fluid. So the referee is probably hamstrung, but in terms of what he feels he can and cannot give in those situations. Well, that's a flaw in the protocols. It's an explanation. It's true. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, if 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 the VAR is is uh, willing to give a penalty or give a you know give some seriously <laughs> give some important decisions. If it turns out that the referee was wrong, then you know he should at least be allowed to go and look at the monitor to decide whether he's. I know we're talking about slowing down the game more again, but this has happened a lot. I think it's quite a common theme this season. So and it's something really we should want to stamp out. Now that we've mentioned VAR, we might as well talk about Graham Scott, the referee, and something that we saw. It was totally unique for the first time in the Premier League. A referee went to check the VAR monitor and stuck with their original decision. And that meant Brighton's goal stood. It clearly looked like a foul from Solly March in the build-up to the goal. And that's what he went to check. He seemed to imply that there was a slither, a, a small touch of the ball by Solly March. He seemed to be the only person in Britain that could see that. But there you go. He's the referee. Um, and I just wonder whether that made a little bit of a mockery of VAR once again, or whether you agreed with it. You're grimacing, Gregor. <laughs> I mean, he did touch it. It was a slither. And, you know, I used to be of the view that any touch of the ball, no matter what happened, came afterwards, really, that sh- it should be irrelevant. I, th- I was a defender. I thought <laughs> if you hit the ball, you even just clip a little bit and you go through the man, it doesn't matter. You got the ball. You got, ball, I the ball ref. Yeah, I got the ball ref. <laughs> <laughs> but that's no longer the case. So, uh, yeah. You know, it doesn't. I, I think with a touch that kind of that fine, and he did, and it didn't really alter the trajectory of the ball. Um, Hoiberg was still running out with the ball. It was ninety nine point nine percent man, not one percent ball, and you think that's enough? And that is the defenders' union quite no, clearly. Think, no, no, no. I think it should have been a foul, but I do. It did. He did touch the ball, and I can't believe I said that. So that's my views conflicting already. <laughs> Something never before witnessed in British football <laughs> either. Uh, Gregor changing his opinion. Um, it was very, very, very important that Graham Scott cha- did not change his mind because, regardless of whether he was right or wrong to do so, because that has that it's a mockery of the system if we all assume as soon as the referee goes to the monitor, he's going to repeat what he's heard in his earpiece. Therefore blooming point so I even though I think on balance and I don't think it was such a terrible decision it was it was that the ball was definitely touched the point was that Hoiberg was still in a position to be able to run onto it and go forward and so the trailing leg stopped him from doing that I would have given a foul but I think I think you could interpret it as it needn't necessarily have been a foul but I think what's more important the bigger picture here is that that we had a referee who had the guts to say, no, I know what I saw and I've just seen what I saw again and I don't care what they're saying in some blooming booth in down the M25, thank you. I wonder if they're all going to be stood there going over to the monitor thinking, oh, maybe I'll just, I'll, I'll do, you know, I'll ignore them, Alison Rudder like that. I'll get her back on side. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the power, I think, that the, the game podcast can have. So maybe that's what it was think- he was thinking. So there you go. He's got his If they're going to be seen as people who have um, got really got guts and strong personalities because they stick by their decisions, and I think they might, there might be a bit of ego coming into it in the future and people just saying, even though I've seen the evidence with my own eyes, clearly I'm sticking by my first 
decision that could continue who knows who knows um just quickly before we go guys bit of fun i think i've got to give credit to slatan ibrahimovic who's a big name big figure uh, in world football of course but he's doing tremendous things at the moment at the age of 39 years old he scored seven in four appearances for ac milan so far this season but 17 goals in 22 games since his return to Serie A is remarkable um you know when he when any player goes to the mls i think that's it you know but there you go he's back in europe he's doing his thing some of us have doubted him he clearly has never doubted himself and so i thought we'd remind ourselves of some of the great players who defied their age over time and i don't know who wants to go first who's got a favorite and in fact let's start by asking what's the criteria for one of these players is there an age cutoff is it 35 I don't think there's an age cutoff, but I think we might have to avoid goalkeepers, maybe, because there are a lot. Ooh, I've got a goalkeeper on my list. No, but there are a lot of goalkeepers. You know, Edwin van der Sar is a great example. Um, joined Manchester United at 35 or 36, won four Premier League titles and a Champions League. But he, I think goalkeepers is, is, a, is a cheat because you could... So is there an age cutoff for goalkeepers and an age cutoff for outfield players then? I think for goalkeepers, if you're doing 40. it after 40, yeah. You've got oh, to be 37 for outfield? Yeah, I think so, yeah. yeah. Okay, so we've defined our criteria. You can, you can push until your 36th year and then retire, you know. So I think, <laughs> yeah. Although I know, You've got I'm, to go I mean, past 37. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 37 for an outfield, 40 for a goalkeeper then. Alison, I'm going to start with you. Who are your aged legends? <laughs> There's a very clear one in, in my household because we took a family trip to Rome just to pay homage to Franny Totti before he finally hung up his boots. Not enough people ever called him Franny Totti, I don't think. We went to Rome and we were just really worried that uh, we might not get to see him in the flesh. So uh, we got tickets. Very, I spent a fortune on tickets. Um, it was, um, I'll tell you the date actually. It was, uh, it, was, it was in October 2016. Roma were playing Palermo, I think. And uh, they won 4-1. And Franny was on the bench. And he, he, was, he just turned 40. And that, this is what they were doing with him at the end of his career. He was, he was a bench player. And uh, so we were nervous that he wouldn't actually get on. But he came on. And it had been a really rubbish game. And the atmosphere was awful. But as soon as he came on, home crowd came to life. We enjoyed standing up and giving him an ovation. And of course, what you do when you're 40 years old is you just have the most incredible vision. You don't run around. You just sort of start spraying passes around. And that's why players go beyond 39 is because they've they've just got the intelligence to do it and they have an aura. So you sort of think, why don't, why don't the opposition just pile in and, and make sure, you know, they look effectively like down to 10 men. They gave him enormous respect. So he was allowed to spray the ball around and do what he wanted to do. And I bought my son a totty shirt. It's, it was a bit too small. It was the only one I found in time for him to wear to the game. So it was, it was, it was, it was, it was a big, big moment for us. And yes, we went to see the Trevi Fountain, but the most beautiful thing we saw was Franny Totty. <laughs> I'll go. I'm still sticking in Serie. I've I've got to go. Uh, Zanetti. Oh, great Zanetti, what a player! I mean, uh, the thing that all the most most. I mean, this although uh, Ibrahimovic is slightly different, but most most players who go on and go on and go on, they 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 tend to be able to evolve and kind of adapt their game to maybe change position or whatever. So Zanetti was a fullback, and he became a midfielder in la- latter years, and you know. I think he was a few weeks away from his 37th birthday when he captained Inter to the to the treble under Mourinho. Champions League final was his 700th appearance for Inter. Uh, he smashed all sorts of records, 140-odd caps for Argentina, I think 850 for Inter. And he played for another four years after that, so he was 41 when he, when he hung up his boots. And so some players, it's about, I don't know, maybe, you know, Ibrahimovic never really relied upon pace. And, you know, a lot of it is looking after yourself. And Gennetti, no one really seemed to look in a better shape for such a prolonged period than Gennetti. Than Gennetti. And he also managed to kind of adapt his game and, and move into midfield. So, incredible player. 
the fullbacks union there. I think, Greg, didn't you want to get called the uh, Zanetti of the Football League? Who <laughs> <laughs> was that? Really drunk. <laughs> I am. Um, do you know? I was going to put a goalkeeper on my list, but clearly, I've I've not been allowed. But he was forty-four when he retired, so that's know, all right. That's give fine. me this. Yeah, I I, I I was a big fan of Brad Friedel. Um, I just don't, I don't know why there was just something about his approach his professionalism and the fact that he was able to, you know, he wasn't like a cat diving into the top corner every game, but he just had this sturdiness as a goalkeeper. Um, and I think maybe part of the allure for me with Brad Frieda was that he was an American. I know there's been a, quite a few good American goalkeepers, but there was this thing about an American being in Blackburn, you know, and then <laughs> and being a goalkeeper playing over 200 games that sort of gave me this allure of like, yeah, he's a, he's a good lad. Um, <laughs> I was a huge fan of Paolo Maldini, even into his latter years, it's unbelievable player and longevity, of course, but my ultimate, I think, and a lot of people's ultimate should be, Roger Miller, the Cameroonian, of course, <laughs> World Cup goal scorer at 42 years old back in 1994. But um, again, with him, it's just the, the fact that he encapsulated for many people in that period, I think, you know, what African football was about, not just on the pitch, but the sort of character, the colourful nature, the dancing, you know, what went into it was about a little bit more than than what happened on the pitch as well. So it's got to be Roger Miller for me. I think an American in Blackburn sounds like an edgy indie film that could come out. <laughs> Some sort of horror film, I think. To yeah. be honest. Um, Roger Miller's a great shot. I mean, in when was I was looking this up before, did, any, did we all know that George Weyer's final appearance for Liberia was aged 51? Couldn't believe it. Was that part of an that. election campaign? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, he played against Nigeria, aged 51 years and 345 days. But anyway, How that, old that, is he that, now? that's not my pick. Uh, that was like last year or two years ago or something. Mm. That's not my pick. There's lots of good suggestions from Twitter that I'll just mention. Uh, Anton says Stuart Pearce returning to play for England at 37 uh, in the qualifiers, I think, for the Euros, I think that was. Obviously work with him regularly now at TalkSport, but, and he's a, he's a lovely guy and I would never, ever call him psycho on air because it just doesn't fit. And I don't think it's fair to him at all, but the football fans, a lot of football fans, of course, still call him that. But funnily enough, I was watching um, just one of those shows on Sky or wherever, looking back at different periods and players and it was a focus on Stuart Pearce and it was completely understandable in fact why he was called Psycho I mean the guy did not shirk a challenge <laughs> whatsoever but it's funny we were doing a Champions League game last week and we were talking about a Champions League debut for oh it might have been one of the young Liverpool players I can't exactly remember who was making their debut and I was I asked Stuart you know what's going through your mind you know when you make a, a young player making your debut in a massive game and I hadn't actually thought about his Champions League career but he said, well, I made my Champions League debut when I was 35 and um, I was as nervous as hell because it's European football and it's as big as it gets. And that's a player that had been to a World Cup. So um, it just shows you, you know, even if you get a little bit older, you still have the same feelings. Absolutely. <laughs> but there were some other, some other good suggestions, Alison. No shout out for Gary McAllister, who, of course, joined your Liverpool, age 35, for a very successful two years of trophies. Jamie Curiton, obviously a job, you know, a journeyman striker, still scoring goals. Um, lots of other good suggestions as well. Producer John giving Jermaine Defoe a shout out. Um, but I think I am going to go for, just because of his name alone, Fabio Quagliarella, the Italian striker, uh, who just under our bracket of 37, but he was Italian Serie A top scorer age 36, and unlike the likes of Zanetti, who stayed at their big clubs, he's moved around a lot. He left Juventus, played for Torino, and is now at Sampdoria for the last few seasons, where he scored 75 goals in 158 games. And he started this season with five, with four goals in five games. So he's giving them a run for their money uh, once again. Now, let me tell you, I knew that because I bought FIFA 21 on the <laughs> PlayStation and on career mode, I've taken over Sampdoria. And they immediately tell you, Fabio Qualiarella is retiring at the end of the season. Oh, how they know something I don't. That's exactly, <laughs> exactly. So that, that comes with the game. But unfortunately, I then thought, well, this guy's out the door. I'll buy um, Martinelli from Arsenal. I'll get Liao on loan from AC Milan. And let's put it this way. 
sidelining Fabio Quagliarella has not gone down well with the players <laughs> or the board. Do not do that if you take over Sampdoria on the PlayStation. What this podcast has taught us is the value of a Mediterranean diet. Just how many Italians <laughs> have we highlighted? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's, there's plenty more, aren't there? I mean, half of that team that won the World Cup were all, in footballing terms, ancient, weren't they, really? Um, and Buffon, I mean, I know we're not allowed to talk about goalkeepers, but you know, Buffon is absolutely extraordinary, isn't he? Uh, he's going to keep playing and playing forever. Olive oil. Olive oil. <laughs> but we should see, thanks to the, the miracles of, of sports science, are quite a few players going longer, I think. You know, we see what Ronaldo's doing at the moment, of course, Ibrahimovic, but even the likes of Jamie Vardy. I mean, they're just like dispelling the myth that you're going to get older, slower, less sharp, and you'll be out the door by 35, 36. You know, they could run and run those players. So... We'll see how it goes. Where, um, where has Latin spent most of his career? Olive oil places. That's true. <laughs> Olive oil places. Yeah, absolutely. Look, we're all moving to Italy then. So this podcast can run and run and we stay youthful for as long as possible. Thanks to everyone, by the way, uh, who responded to Tom on social media and gave their views. Tom Clark, Gregor Robertson, Alison Rudd, thank you for being with me for the past hour or so. We'll be back on Thursday, as always, with plenty of football uh, to look forward to next weekend to come as well. So thank you for being with us. But a reminder before you go, don't forget, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times for more of the latest news from the world of football. Just go online, search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game and you'll get yourself one month free. Listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.